0: All right, before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful for the day, grateful for your word. We're grateful for another opportunity to learn from it, Lord, as believers who who love your word, Lord, I pray that we would uh, think of areas we need to grow, need to grow in Christ. And Lord, for those who might not know you today, I pray, Lord, that they would see how great Christ is, that they would run to him, that they'd turn from their sins and trust in him, and I pray that. What happens today would all go for your glory. Lord, that we would trust in you, that we praise you. Praise all in Christ's name. Amen. I have a couple questions for you to start off. Um, what do you hope in your life that will bring you into God's favor? When you boil everything down, when you remove everything, all the obstacles, what do you think is going to earn you favor with God? What do you think brings you into God's favor? And I'm convinced that most of the time, our natural tendency is to resort to what's called legalism. We resort to legalism, and basically, um, when we think of legalism, there's all kinds of definitions of legalism today. The word is used a lot. You might not have heard it until today, but if you were to, you know, read theology blogs and blogs about Bible teaching, you'd see the word legalism all the time. Um, what is legalism exactly? What is it? Is it is it wearing a tie? Is wearing a tie to church? Not exactly, not necessarily. Um, Some legalistic people wear ties, but also legalistic people don't wear ties. I knew of a man who visited a Mennonite church when he was young, and he showed up wearing a tie. And they said, how worldly are you? You're wearing a tie. The people in the world wear ties. So that was legalism on their part. So I don't think legalism is wearing a tie or wearing a, a suit jacket. Those could be manifestations of it, but I don't think it's at the heart of legalism. I think the heart of legalism is thinking that who you are or what you do will earn you favor with God, thinking that who you are or what you do will put you and keep you in a right relationship with God. I believe that's the heart of legalism, thinking things that we do, thinking privileges we have will earn us favor with God. That's the heart of legalism. And the reason why I'm talking about this so much is because legalism is deadly. Legalism is deadly. Why? Because it actually can send people to hell. It sends people to hell because if they go their whole life thinking, if someone goes their whole life thinking that what they do is earning them favor with God, they're not putting their trust in the right place. The right place would be Christ because Christ is the only one who can deliver people from hell. Legalism is very, very deadly, very deadly. God doesn't accept any payment that we try to make for our sins. He only accepts the the payment that Christ made. He only accepts the payment that Christ made for sin. So I hope you see at least that we need to avoid legalism. But how do we do it? How do we avoid legalism? Well, what I'd like to submit to you today in our passage that we're about to read is that Paul gives us two reminders ...on how to avoid the tragedy of legalism. We're going to see two reminders on how we can avoid legalism. So let's read our text for this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers... Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now we're going to be looking primarily at verses 4 through 11. But before we get there, I just at least want to uh, show you where Paul or how Paul arrives at verse four, in verses one through three. So let's give you a little bit of background. In verse one, uh, Paul, as he writes, he's writing this letter from prison, actually, and telling believers in a little city called Philippi, just like we're believers here in Tampa. Paul's writing to believers in a city in Philippi, and he writes in verse one: Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. So Paul isn't saying, okay, let's go over this one more time because you're thick-skulled. He's saying it's not a problem for me at all to write the same things over and over again, to tell you the same things over and over again because he realizes how important these things are for them to keep getting in their mind. He says it's safe for them to hear these things over and over again. And dropping into verse 2, Why is it so important? What does he have to say that's going to be so important to these Philippian believers? He tells them, he gives them some commands here. He said, beware or watch out for the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Gives them some serious warnings. And why are they serious? Because the people he's talking about here were extremely dangerous. They were extremely dangerous because they were teaching the Philippian believers legalism. They were teaching legalism. They were teaching that those believers couldn't be saved unless they kept the law of Moses, unless they kept the Old Testament law. And I think a perfect example of this, you don't have to turn there if you don't want, but in Acts 15, in verse 1, it's very, it might be surprising as you hear it, but this is what these type of men were teaching, these believers. It says in Acts 15, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. This is what they taught them unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved so Paul calls these men the false circumcision they had removed any meaning from the act of circumcision to them it was said simply cutting away or mutilation of the flesh they removed all significance from the act of circumcision so the, that's who Paul's warning against he's warning him against false teachers and then in verse 3, He draws a distinction between the false teachers and the believers. He says that true believers are different. True believers know what real circumcision is all about, or as our Bible puts it, the true circumcision. As we look at Colossians 2, you don't have to turn there for time's sake, but uh, the concept is that in Christ you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And that's also Paul writing that, so I believe that's what he is meaning by the true circumcision. True believers know what circumcision is all about. And then he goes on to say some great things about believers, three things in particular. True believers worship in the Spirit of God. True believers glory or boast in Christ Jesus. And lastly, true believers put no confidence in the flesh. So true believers don't rely on their own efforts and achievements to earn them favor with God. Um, and again, as I said, sometimes we resort back to that line of thinking, but as a whole, true believers don't live that way. So as I said, we're going to look at two reminders. Paul shows in this passage two reminders that show us how we can avoid the tragedy of legalism. Two reminders that show us how to avoid the tragedy of legalism. So let's look at the first reminder. Remember that you were spiritually bankrupt. You read that in verses 4 through 7. Remember that you were spiritually bankrupt. Let's read those verses once more, starting in verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So in verse 4, he says, If there was anyone else in the world, if there was anyone out there who could put confidence in his flesh, put confidence in his own achievements, it would be Paul, saying, This is what I thought of myself before I became a believer, before I came to Christ. I thought I had it all. And I was, you know, if you did compare him to other people around, you would see that he was the best of the best. His credentials were the best. Um, His resume, this is kind of acting as his resume, talking about his past life in Judaism. Uh, How many of you have been on careerbuilders.com or monster.com and you submit maybe a 100 resumes to all these different companies and you receive zero calls back? I've experienced that at least, maybe just my resume. But uh, when Paul sent his resume out on synagoguejobs.com in the first century... Every synagogue would have called him back and said, "We need you, Paul. We need you. You got what we want. You got what you, you got. What we're looking for. You got you got the stuff we're looking for." So his problem would have been trying to decide which job to take. So what what are these credentials that Paul had? What are these? And I think we see them in a, in verses five and six. Uh, first, we'll see that Paul had a pretty nice set of national privileges. Pretty nice set of national privileges. And as we'll see, his national privileges couldn't earn him God's favor. When I mean national privileges, I'm talking about those things he gained by birth, those things he gained by birth. So let's look at the first one briefly. It says he was circumcised on the eighth day. This would have been you know, one of the most basic um, and first and basic steps in someone's life as a Jew. Um, this is just what Jews did when they were born into the family. They would get circumcised on the eighth day. He thought that would earn favor with God. He thought that was a gain. Secondly, he was from the nation of Israel. If you were to read in Acts 26, Paul says, So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. He was from the nation of Israel. He thought that earned him favor with God. He thought that was a gain. Thirdly, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And you say, what's the big deal with that? Well, it was a pretty big deal for people in Paul's day. It was, uh, by that time, one of the most uh, noble tribes of Israel. Most of you know Saul in the Old Testament, Israel's first king. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai, you probably know him from the book of Esther. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And in the long run, the tribe of Benjamin remained faithful to Israel uh, when others did not. So he thought being from the tribe of Benjamin would earn him favor with God. He thought it was a gain. And the last national privilege, he was a purebred Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrew parents, you could read it. He wasn't like those who converted to Judaism later in life, but he was rather born a Hebrew. This would be just like us saying, I'm an American, my parents were American, their grandparents were American, I'm a purebred American. Or some might say... I'm a Southerner. My parents were Southerners. We grew up in the South. We're all Southerners. It would be that national pride that Paul is talking about. This is where, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. I'm proud to be part of the Hebrew people. He thought that earned him favor with God. He even thought that was a gain. So those were his national privileges. And then the rest of verse five and in verse six, we'll see that Paul had some pretty nice personal achievements. But as we'll see, his personal achievements couldn't earn him favor with God. And whereas the other achievements he had he gained by birth, these ones he gained by hard, hard work. And we see in verse 5 at the end, it says, As to the law, a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee. And if we look back in Acts 26, we would read, Paul says, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Paul was a Pharisee, and a lot of times we don't remember that the Pharisees didn't actually start out bad. They actually started out in a time when people weren't really concerned about obeying God. They said, "Okay, let's get together. Let's be a little more strict about obeying God. Let's let's look into the Word and really get what it's saying, and let's live by it, by what it says." So they started out good, but the problem came in when they started looking outwardly to other people and saying, "You know what? We're doing we're doing pretty good. We're doing a lot better." Than those around us, we're really obeying God, and that's when it shifted from good and you know good intentions from the beginning to legalistic intentions at the end. And as we read all throughout the Gospels, that's how the Pharisees were very legalistic people. And don't we do the same thing? We start out with good intentions. We see around us that people aren't obeying God. We see the world and it's crumbling. We see sin all around us, and then we say, you know what? I need to get back and do things the right way I need to start obeying God and that's good we start out with good intentions and then we turn it around and start looking at people again and saying I'm doing pretty good God must be pleased with me because I'm not doing those things so it's the same tendency that we have so at least we need to not be as as quick as we usually are to fault the Pharisees for that kind of attitude because we do the same thing unfortunately and the second uh, personal achievement that he gained by hard work Says he was a persecutor of the church. And uh, you don't have to turn there again because we're going to look at several quick passages. But in Acts 8, most of you are familiar with these passages. But Paul or, or Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And then Acts 26. So then I thought to myself, Paul's saying this, that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints or believers in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. And in Galatians 1, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul was very zealous to persecute the church. He was so deeply devo- devoted to the religion of Judaism that anything that opposed it, especially those who followed Jesus, he was ready to put them in prison and kill them. He was very zealous for Judaism. And thirdly, he obeyed the law strictly. He obeyed the Old Testament law very strictly. Um, he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. <clears throat> now, do you think he was actually blameless? Do you think he you know, kept the law perfectly? Um I think what he's saying here is that he at the time he had deceived himself into thinking that he was pretty good with keeping the law others saw him they couldn't catch him in any in any sin he didn't see himself as in any sin he had deceived himself into thinking that he was blameless because he kept the law so well and again we tend to do the same thing we say oh yeah I'm a pretty good person you know I don't do this I don't do that I don't kill people I don't steal things but God looks a little bit deeper than that. He considers being angry with someone without warrant, he considers that murder. He considers lusting after someone else in your heart, he considers that adultery. So God looks a little bit deeper deeper than we do. So he thought that being found blameless but keeping the law earned him favor with God, he thought that was a gain. So that was Paul. He was in Judaism. He had all these national privileges. He had a bunch of achievements that he earned by hard work. Um, But you say, well, I'm not a Jew. I wasn't, you know, I didn't, you know, like my menorah. I didn't wear a yarmulke. I don't wear prayer shawls. Um, Well, what are some things that that we trust in? What are some things, are, are our credentials that we trust in? Maybe you grew up Roman Catholic. Maybe you have rosary beads and you pray through them constantly. Maybe you attend mass every morning say, that's, that's pretty good. I go to church every day of the week. That's not going to earn his favor with God. That's not a gain. Maybe you are Presbyterian. Maybe you were baptized as an infant, and you're trusting in that baptism, and saying, oh, I'm going to make it to heaven one day. Not necessarily. Maybe getting closer to home, I grew up Baptist. Uh, that's, that's me. I grew up a Baptist. I was in Sunday school on the eighth day from a long line of Protestants, I attend the good seminary and the good Bible college. As to zeal, I can't even remember the time I started door-to-door evangelism. I was so young. Those are our achievements that we trust in. And I think what we need to do is have a mind shift to stop thinking of those things as gains, stop thinking of those things as those that earn us favor with God because they don't. None of those things, nothing external nothing no privilege we have no achievement that we've done can earn us favor with God and I think it's when we get to the heart the heart of this passage in verse 7 look carefully at it it says in verse 7 but whatever things were gained to me those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ so Paul looks back now as a believer and looks back on all those achievements and privileges that he had and said all that was loss Why do you consider it loss? Because he wanted to gain Christ. And when we use the words loss and gain here, Paul's using financial terms or terms that refer to money. He's saying that, you know, I had this heavenly bank account over here in, in Judaism. I thought it was loaded with cash. I thought I had it all. My savings were great. My checking account was great. I had it all, and I was on my way to favor with God. But then he saw Christ. And he realized that all the things that were, he thought were profit were actually loss. All the things that he thought were an advantage were really a disadvantage. All the things he trusted in to give him favor with God actually prevented him from gaining favor with God. They prevented him from gaining favor with God. He saw Christ and said, I'm considering everything loss so that I can gain something else. Christ. He considered it loss to gain Christ. And it gets even more graphic in verse 8, where he says that he suffered the loss of all things, everything he mentioned plus more, and considers them but rubbish. He considers them rubbish. So what's rubbish mean? It's a pretty strong word. It actually, if you have a King James Bible, it says dung. And that's a pretty good way of putting it. Something It's, it's manure, dung, manure stinking trash, something you want to get rid of, something you don't want near your nose at all, something you have to get rid of. He was willing to look at his privileges and achievements, his hard work, his, his good works, as something that had to be thrown away immediately so that he could gain Christ. Um, and who negatively, if you're thinking of an example of this, who does this remind you of? I think we should turn to Luke chapter 18, and I think we'll see a good example of someone who wasn't willing to give up everything for Christ. Someone who wasn't willing to give up all of his privileges and achievements to gain Christ. And you're all very familiar with this, I believe, in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, the rich young ruler. It says, A ruler questioned him, Jesus, saying, Good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack Sell all that you possess, and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. The rich young ruler was someone who wasn't willing to consider everything that he thought was gain as loss. He wasn't willing to give up what he had to follow Christ. So what if someone came up to you and said, give up everything you own, give up all your money, give up all of your achievements, give up your good works so that you can gain Christ. You know, sell your computers, sell both your cars, sell your iPod, sell your cell phones. You say, well, I'm pretty sad about that. I might just go my own way. But Jesus tells us, if you're trusting in anything except me to earn favor with God, you got to get rid of it. you got to throw away, throw it away like it's garbage. So remembering that our works have gained us nothing except spiritual bankruptcy helps us avoid the trap of legalism. You say, how does it do that? Um, And as we said, if we look at our works, our achievements, as something that earn us favor with God, we have a wrong mindset because they don't. They don't earn us favor with God. Realizing that only our works give us spiritual bankruptcy uh, helps us avoid the trap of legalism because it sends us to somewhere else other than legalism. It sends us to Christ rather than our own achievements. But it doesn't stop there. Paul gives us one more reminder on how we can avoid legalism. And that is remember that you are wealthy in Christ. Remember that you are wealthy in Christ. You'll see that in verses 8 through 11. Let's read. and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So we must remember that it is only in Christ that we find God's favor. If we realize that, we'll see that we don't need legalism, but we need Christ. The riches we have in Christ far outweigh any good thing that we can do, far surpass any good thing we can do. We have many riches in Christ, and... As we just read in verses 8 through 11, I believe that Paul points us to three gains that we have in Christ. Three of the riches that we have in Christ. When we let go of everything, our achievements, our, our, our privileges, and we run to Christ, we gain so much more. And here's what we have. Gain number one in verse 9. In Christ, we have justification. We have justification in Christ. It said in verse 9 that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's justification in a nutshell, I believe. And you say justification, that's a, a big word. I've never heard that word. It's The meaning is uh, it's packed. That's why we use big words. Big words usually have big meanings. So the meaning to this is that God declares us righteous or declares us right on the ground of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Christ declares us righteous on the ground of Christ's work. That's what justification is. And as we read in the verse, it doesn't come from ourselves. Paul says that he wanted to have a righteousness that wasn't his own, not having a righteousness of my own. And uh, if you desire, you can jump back to Luke 18, and we'll see another example of someone who was trusting in himself to be righteous. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What does he do? I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's a very clear picture that righteousness does not come from ourselves. This Pharisee was trusting in himself. You know, I I do these things. I I pay tithes of all that I get. I, I do these things. I obey the law. But this tax collector over here, he doesn't do those things. But who does Jesus say was justified? Who went home justified? He said the tax collector because he looked up to heaven and said, You know, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm a sinner. I need you. There's no way I can have righteousness on my own. I must have your righteousness. It does not come from ourselves. Justification does not come from ourselves. say, well, does it come from the law? No, Paul says justification doesn't come from the law either. He says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Uh, Galatians 2, verse 21 says, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Why would Christ die if we could do it on our own? Why would Christ come to the earth to die if we can work hard enough to save ourselves, if we can work hard enough to be justified, if we, you know, just pay the tithes of all we get, if we do these sets of rules, obeying them, why would Christ need to die? Well, the problem is that those things didn't get us anywhere. That's why Christ had to die for us. Christ would die needlessly if we could get righteousness from the law. But that's not the case. And uh, most of you, you might be familiar with Romans chapter 4. talks about Abraham and how Abraham was justified. Um, It says basically that he received justification, but it asks the question, or the questions, when was justification credited to Abraham? Was it while he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? It says, not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised, that he was justified. So his justification, the faith that he put in Christ to be justified, came before he was doing the works of the law. We can't gain righteousness through the law. So where does it come from? The passage says that it comes from God through faith in Christ. Justification comes through God. Comes from God through faith in Christ. It says. In verse 10 or verse 9 but that which is through faith in Christ this is the righteousness that he wants the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith so what does it end up looking like that's why I'm glad we sang the hymn earlier the solid rock the first verse you're probably familiar with says my hope is built on nothing less nothing less than Jesus blood and his righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's what justification looks like. It looks like someone who is basing all of his trust and faith in Christ, Christ's work on the cross when he died, was buried, was resurrected, and ascended back up into heaven. He did all that for us so that we could be justified because Christ's work could do it because he was the perfect God, the perfect man. We are imperfect people who sin. We cannot earn it on our own. It comes from God through faith in Christ. So you say, how does this help us avoid legalism? If we, if we remember that God is the one who justifies us, that will definitely help us avoid the trap of legalism, realizing again that God is the one doing these things, not us. So that's the first gain, justification. The second gain we have in Christ In Christ, we have sanctification. You say, where is that? I believe it's in verse 10. It says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I believe it's summing up, in a nutshell, sanctification, our ongoing life as believers in Christ. Most of you, or some of you, have been studying Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. You might see the little picture on the board every Sunday morning before the service starts. But in that book he defines sanctification this way he says sanctification is a progressive work of god and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like christ in our actual lives that's what justification is it's something ongoing that that god does in us and we need to work at it like it says in philippians 2 that work out your salvation with fear and trembling why because it's god who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure But ultimately, it's God, the one who's doing doing the work. So what does sanctification involve? It says in verse 10, like we just read, that we can know him, that we can know the power of his resurrection, that we can know the fellowship of his sufferings. I believe it involves three things. If we look elsewhere in the Bible, we'll see that sanctification can involve more things. But in this case, it shows us three aspects of sanctification. It says that we know Christ as believers, to know him. And the word know is important here. It's not talking about, you know, singing in college class and learning facts about about God and about Christ, but it's knowing in a personal, intimate relationship. If uh, you were to look at Genesis chapter 4, it said, And uh, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and and bore him a son. The word know there, that Adam knew his wife, doesn't mean that he knew that... You know, Eve was 5'6, and that she had brown hair and liked long long walks on the beach. It doesn't imply that he knew facts. It implies that they had an intimate relationship together. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Not saying I don't want to just, well, it's great to know facts about Christ. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm, I really want a personal, intimate relationship with Christ. I want to know Christ. And this is an ongoing aspect of a believer. The question is do you know him? The second aspect of sanctification here is that we know the power of his resurrection. We know the power of his resurrection. say, what does this have to do with with anything? The power of his resurrection is, is very important. It's central, one of the central truths for the Christian. It brings us new life. Christ's resurrection brings us new life. The power of his resurrection. In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks. That's what the power of his resurrection can bring about in our lives new life. It says we will never die. That's the power of his resurrection. And if you'd like, you flip over to Romans chapter 6. We'll see another powerful example of. Christ's power and his resurrection. Let's read quickly uh, verses 4 through 11, Romans chapter 6. Paul writes, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, because that happened, we can walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for we we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And let's continue in verse 8. This is very important to get. Verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And there's other concepts happening in here, but what I'm getting at is That Christ's resurrection, the power of his resurrection, gives us the hope of new life. If Christ had not conquered the grave, Christ had not been resurrected from the dead, we wouldn't have power for new life. We would not have power for new life. So the question is, do you know the power of his resurrection? And the third aspect of our sanctification is that we know the fellowship of his sufferings. We know the fellowship of his sufferings. Another central part of our sanctification And as believers or slaves of Christ even, we do suffer for him. As we look back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, says, For to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ but also to suffer for him, to suffer for his sake. But when Paul says the fellowship of his sufferings, I believe he's getting uh, primarily at that we have someone to suffer with. We have someone to suffer with. We have fellowship with Christ and his sufferings. In 1 Corinthians, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is in abundance through Christ. Do you know the fellowship of his sufferings? So that's sanctification, three aspects of it. Remembering that God is ultimately the one who sanctifies us. This also helps us avoid the trap of legalism, realizing that God is the one who is doing the work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That helps us avoid legalism by showing us that we can't do it on our own. Showing us that God is the one doing it. And finally, we'll look at the third gain we have in Christ. The third gain we have in Christ. In Christ, we have glorification. In Christ, we have glorification. We see that in verse 11. He says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what in the world is glorification? It's as we look at the Bible and look at other parts of the Bible, we'll see that glorification is the final step of our salvation in the end times in which Christ will transform our lowly bodies into conformity with his glorious body. So it's something that's going to happen in the end times. It's going to be the final part of our salvation. We can say we're saved now, but we're not saved yet. You know, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. This is talking about The will be saved, part of our salvation. You say, where do you get that definition? If you look down a few verses in chapter 3, Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the key phrase here. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And to be more detailed, Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Here's a very key phrase, and we will be changed. That's talking about the transforming of our lowly bodies into conformity with God's or Christ's glorious body. So why is it so important? Have you read Romans chapter 8 and you really agreed with Paul? You said, amen, Paul, amen. Because he talks there about, um, in verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. I think you can know what he's getting at there. Do you ever get tired of how fragile our bodies are? seems like we start falling apart from the moment we're born. We start having all these problems. Our body breaks down. We get sick and we die, most of us pretty young in many cases. Our bodies are pretty fragile. We need help. That's why glorification is so important. That's why it's such a great aspect of our salvation. That's why it's such a great gain, something we can really look forward to because we're suffering in this world now. We're suffering with fragile bodies. We can one day look forward to when our bodies will be glorified. So, remembering that God is the one who glorifies us also helps us avoid the trap of legalism. shows us that it's not something, especially, as, you know, do you see yourself glorifying yourself, giving yourself a new resurrection body? It's something that only God can do, and it helps us avoid the trap of legalism. So, these are the three gains we have in Christ. We have justification in Christ. We have sanctification in Christ. We have glorification in Christ. So remembering that God is the one who justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies us will help us avoid the trap of legalism, realizing that it's not us who's doing it, but God who's doing it. So in conclusion, I'm convinced that if we remember that apart from Christ, we're spiritually bankrupt, and I'm convinced that if we remember that in Christ, we are wealthy, not with money, but with riches that we talked about, riches in Christ, I believe if we remember those two things, spiritual bankruptcy, wealth in Christ, if we know those things and keep those in our minds daily, we're going to avoid the trap, tragedy of legalism. If we remember these two truths, we'll know that our own privileges, that our own achievements gain us no favor in God's eyes and that only Christ can bring us into favor with God. It's only in Christ that we find our true gain. Everything we put our trust in before is all garbage. Everything we have in Christ is gain or riches. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the riches that we have in you. We're grateful for opening our eyes, Lord. We thank you so much for opening our eyes to showing us that all of our past achievements, all of our good works were nothing in your eyes. Lord, no matter uh, where we were on the totem pole, Lord, uh, we were bankrupt in your eyes we had no nothing to offer you we had no good deeds to offer you Lord. they were all filthy rags in your eyes our own righteousness got us nowhere but lord we are extremely grateful for the righteousness that we have in christ the riches we have in him we we are so thankful that you've given us justification that you're sanctifying us and that one day you will glorify our bodies lord we are grateful for these things i pray that anything we learn today would go for your honor and glory, Lord, that we'd implement these truths in our lives today. pray this all in your name. Amen.